Okay, so is there anybody in this room that thinks that's actual real life magic? <laughs> it's very clever for sure. It was very clever, and that's why they call them illusionists, right? Because it's an illusion. And even Pin and Teller can't figure out how he does that. But the rope trick is a pretty standard old trick. You know, it's an easy enough trick. But all this stuff he does is crazy. But he's very good at it. And he can make you see something that didn't really happen. And that's exactly the way, obviously, that the enemy works. You know, and I, I was, when I was watching this, first time I was immediately thinking of the Pharaoh's magicians. Magicians, right? And they could replicate a lot of the miracles that Moses was doing up to a point. And I always thought, you know, I mean, for most of the time I've been a Christian, I've thought that that's, I mean, how do you do that? How do you throw a stick on the ground and turn it into a snake, right? But you just saw Matt King do some pretty amazing things. So there are people that are really, really good at deceiving you. And obviously you'll pay money to go to a big show in Las Vegas and see somebody like Matt King or Penn and Taylor or, you know, Chris Angel or any of those guys doing things that going in, you know, it's an illusion. It's not really happening, but it's worth paying money to see it because it's, I mean, how, how did he do that? Especially when he made it into the loop, right? I don't know how he did it, but it's a, it's, it's a deception. And we don't take that same, um, that same mindset with us when we go to church or go outside or go anywhere. You know, people will tell us stuff and we just seem to believe it. And right now you've got half the country that will believe uh, one thing and half the country that will believe another. Now they both can't be true, so half the country's been deceived. And... I think everybody in this room knows which, which half is right. <laughs> but there, there's probably rooms like this where they sit around, you know, smoking dope or something, where they all think they're right, and they can't understand how we got to the place that we are. And, of course, today, you know, Trump uh, eliminates Suleiman, which was a great idea, and you've got these other half of the people seeing it totally differently. Even though they have no facts, they had no idea that he was planning to kill the Saudi ambassador on American soil and all that stuff. But they still, well, they see things and they are unable to come to the truth. And it's the same way with us. I mean, with anybody. The Lord does stuff all day long. He's created stuff and he does, I mean, incredible things. And we can either choose to investigate further what he might be telling us or meaning or we can just say well that's not true it doesn't matter it's not important and it's sort of like somebody like that you can be deceived that easily you know and, and were this guy not a magician a magician and on tv and calling it the rope trick uh, there are probably people that would be completely amazed. How did he do that with a rope? I saw him cut it and now it's not. <coughs> it's just that easy. So as we talk about all this stuff that we talk about, 
you know, I recognize anyway that there is an awful lot of Matt King in this stuff, the stuff that we've been taught, the stuff that we've been told by maybe people who are Christians or aren't Christians or uh, read or, you know, whatever. It's hard to get to the bottom of the truth. And a lot of times, I don't even think it's important that we get to the bottom of the truth, or at least as important it is that we'd be able to spot the deception. And that's, again, one of the reasons I go through all this stuff in the Tanakh, because we typically, on Sundays at church, don't... I mean, even if we talk about it a little bit, we don't really get into the the material that I think would help us to spot the deception from the truth. And uh, so this week, these last, this week, last week, and next week are uh, sections on Jacob and Esau. And we all know the stories of Jacob and Esau, and we've read the accounts and all that stuff. And that's good. We should know those stories. But there's a, there's a bigger purpose. I mean, there's another reason those things are in Scripture. It's not just a historical document. And we tend to read it like that. And it tends to be taught to us like that. And because it's history from thousands of years ago, from before the time of Yeshua and the cross and the resurrection and all of that, we tend not to think that history is terribly important. So... This Torah portion is called Vayeshlik, and he sent, like all Torah portions, it's usually the first few words of the Torah portion. And those are the, the sections, Genesis 20, or I'm sorry, 32, 3 through 36, 43, Hosea 11, 7 through 12, 12, and all of Obadiah, which is just a one chapter book, and Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 29. So I thought with Matt King, it would be uh, worth spending a little time to review some of the things. Uh, again, some of the reasons I think it's important to understand what the Tanakh is really saying. It's more than just a history. And I'm not saying it's not history. Those things really did happen. But there's a purpose in it. And if, if, you know, Matthew 13, I think it was, when the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to the rabble, is the Greek word, the, you know, why do you speak to the people that follow after you? He was out on a boat speaking to people following him. The Greek word is cool. It's, in English, it's the rabble. Why do, you, why do you talk to the rabble in parables? And he said, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of God, but to them or the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. Well, that's all it says. So you're left to wonder what it is that the disciples had that the others didn't. And I've always suggested what they had was a pretty solid understanding of the Torah. And the others were probably like most uh, Muslims or Christians or Jews who claim to be one of those things, but really aren't that good at knowing what those things are. They're sort of cultural Jews, cultural Christians, cultural Muslims. You know, because a good Muslim will kill you because you're not a Muslim. And we all know Muslims, I assume, and they haven't killed us, 
So you know right off the bat, they're not good Muslims. And most Jews are the same way. So something like 75, 85% of Jews uh, all vote Democrat for one. You know, the Democrats hate Israel and yet, but anyway, don't even go there. Um, but they're cultural Jews. And we all, it's easy for us to look at those people and see that they're not actually obeying what their word says, but we don't apply that to us. And I would suggest probably the same percentage of Christians are cultural Christians. They're Christians because their mom was a Christian, because the donuts are good, because it's something to do on Sunday. It's, you know, they go and they feel good about what they're listening to and learning, and they feel like they're drawing closer to the Lord. And I'm not saying that they aren't. I'm just saying they don't really apply the things of Scripture to their lives just like the cultural Jews don't, just like the cultural Muslims don't. So for me, it's, it's important to understand some of the, I mean, to the extent that I can, and I'm obviously not the brightest bulb in the box, but there are things that we can understand better and it will help guide us in our path because it's telling us things that are going to happen. So if we go back to Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, it says, Remember the former things of old. And I would just stop there. The Lord is speaking to all of His people. And He says, Remember the former things of old. He doesn't say, Get ready for the things that are coming. He doesn't say, you know, Live a good life now. He doesn't say any of that stuff. He says, to remember the former things of old. So I think that's one of the 8 million places in Scripture that's telling you that maybe we should spend some time with that. So it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring, and I'll read it in English, declaring <coughs> the end from the beginning and from the ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. When you read that in Hebrew, it's Akri Rashid. It's end, beginning. That's what it says. It's out of the end comes the beginning. Or out of the beginning comes the end. It's all the same. So he's telling us that the things that happened at the beginning are going to be the same things that happen at the end. And it's for us to look to those things to gain wisdom and guidance in how we... Uh, approach the world that we live in. And that could be us at the end times, which hopefully it's us at the end times. It could be people in the 13th century or you know anywhere in between. If we looked at the things that happened in the beginning, we get a pretty good sense of what's going to happen at the end. And it happens this way because his counsel shall stand and he will do his pleasure. Ecclesiastes 3.15 that which has been is now. And that which is to be has already been. God requires that which is past. There, it's, this, it's saying the same thing. The things that have happened are going to happen again. So the, the, that which has been is now. Those things are going to happen again. It, it's, that's the way it works. You need to learn the lessons of the old ways. And then there's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
verses 1 through 12, this is Paul talking, and it says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant, or you can translate that, I don't want you to be stupid on purpose, how our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they did all eat the same spiritual drink and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank that spiritual rock that followed him, and that rock was the Messiah. But with, uh, with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that these things are our examples. And he was writing this 2,000 years ago. So he was writing this to a group of people who had only recently heard of Yeshua or Jesus. He'd recently, you know, come, come on the scene and claimed to be the Son of God. And he's saying that these things in the past, because obviously he's talking about the, the Exodus generation, the people that had come from Egypt, and they were under the cloud and drank of the same spiritual rock and all of that stuff, um, that these are our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they lusted, neither ye be idolaters as were some of them. And it is written, the people sat down to eat and rose up to play. Does anybody have trouble with that whole rose up to play thing? Yes. <laughs> weird. Well, it's weird because you think after they had a meal, they would go play volleyball or something. And if you remember uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Ishmael and Isaac. And there was an event that happened, and it's translated in English as Ishmael was mocking Isaac. And it was such a severe infraction that Sarah insisted that Hagar and Ishmael be thrown out of the house and sent back to Egypt. And you read that, and you think, well, that's, you know, it's kind of severe. What kind of mocking would that be? And that same word was used later when Avimelech was uh, uh, Rebekah and Isaac. He had done the same thing his father had done and claimed Rebekah was his sister and all this stuff. And so it says Avimelech saw Rebekah and uh, her husband, Isaac, and it's the same word, mocking or laughing. Sporting, it's translated in, in King James. Well, what is it that a married couple could be doing that would show someone else that they're a married couple, right? So, duh. Well, you go back to Ishmael, it's the same word, it's the same thing. It's got these homosexual sexual overtones that Ishmael was doing something uh, terrible to Isaac. So that's why he was cast out. And of course, this is written in Greek, but it's the same idea. The people rose up to play. It's the Greek version of that same Hebrew word. They're not playing. They're going wild. They're, they're sinning. They're seriously sinning here. So anyway, don't 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 do that. Don't sit down and eat and drink and get up and you know work it off in those ways. Stick to the volleyball. Um, neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand and neither let us tempt the Messiah as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now that's one 
that I personally have issues with because I murmur a lot and I shouldn't <laughs> murmur. But they were destroyed of the destroyer. That, that word, the destroyer, is that same guy, who the death angel, who passed over Egypt. So just as a point of interest. Now, all these things happen to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world come. So Paul is saying we need to look back at these generations to see what they did and what they didn't do, because it's those things that are going to teach us what's going to happen at the end. And it's, it, this little section ends, Wherefore, let him that think he stands take heed lest he falls. And that goes back to uh, my cultural Christians and Jews and Muslims. You know, they all think they're saved. And yet, why would they think that? They don't do anything that their book tells them to do. They don't follow their God. They think they follow their God, or they want other people to think they follow their God. So therefore let him standeth, let him who standeth take heed lest he fall. So I think if we uh, spent some time, as we do every week, looking into these, these lessons that can be learned from the Old Testament that we typically don't get in our sort of flannel graph Christianity because it's, uh, they think it's not that important. And Paul thought it was important that we know these things, especially those people who are living at the end. And if you think we're living at the end or near the end, then Paul is either wrong or we're not typically doing what he suggests that we do. And the same thing with Isaiah and the same thing in Ecclesiastes. So last week, uh, there were a few things we couldn't get to. And one of them that I really wanted to get to was, if you recall, Jacob had served Levon for seven years for Rachel and then got ripped off and got Leah. Served another seven years, got Rachel. Served another six years so that he was able to build up his flock and his family and all that stuff. And then he, um, he, he got the feeling that he needed to leave. He needed to go home. He felt he heard God calling him to take his family and his flocks and his herd and his wealth after 20 years of serving Levon back home. So you remember what he did, right? He just packed up everything and took all the people. Well, that's not true. He sat down with his wives and he discussed it. And he said to them, I've served your father for 20 years. You've seen how I've treated him fairly and he's changed my wages these 10 times. I feel God, I heard God, whatever he said, telling me I need to go home. What do you think? Because Levon was their father, their grandfather to all these children. And he wasn't just gonna pack up this whole family and leave. He discussed it with his wives. Which when you hear about deceivers talking about Christianity, they often tell you, oh, women's supposed to submit to the man and they have no rights and it's a horrible thing and they mistreat women and, you know, and you've heard all that stuff. But it's not true. The most 
female positive religion that has ever been has been Christianity lived out the way God would have it lived out. And he sat down and he discussed this stuff with his wives. So there's a good message in there for that. The other thing he said is, I feel, I hear, God is calling me to go home. And that's kind of how God works. When he wants you to go somewhere, he may whisper it in your ear, he may, you know, there's a million ways he can kind of tell you that, hey, you know, you should maybe be thinking about moving to Zimbabwe or whatever. (laughs) And you don't hear, you don't answer. No, 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 I don't like humidity. I'm not going to Zimbabwe. And then he starts doing more stuff and more stuff. And pretty soon where you are becomes uncomfortable and you don't really want to be there anymore. And if that's what it takes, that's how God will move you. And that's where Jacob was. He had made it so uncomfortable for him. Well, he hadn't made it uncomfortable, but Laban had made it uncomfortable. And he was just done with it. And sometimes, probably often, that's how God will ask you to do something. He will give you a heart for something that maybe you didn't have before, and you, that will be consuming. And you'll be figuring out how you can get to or do or whatever this thing that you believe God has told you about. Or... You're happy where you are. Life is good. You're producing all kinds of speckled and spotted cattle and goats. And it's a nice place. But God wants you to go home or go somewhere. In this case, go home. Because remember, he's living in Syria. He's not even in the promised land. And God is making it more and more difficult for him by allowing Levon to mistreat him. So, you, you know, we read that story and we think oh gosh what a jerk that guy was well and that's probably true you know Levon probably was a jerk and we saw him being a jerk with Rivka and he's still a jerk he's all wrapped around the axles about money and power and wealth and like so many people are that that was his focus and if it meant he had to change the the rules 10 times for Jacob so he could get more money and all that stuff then that's what he would do There are people like that out there, and we think that's just because they're jerks. And it may well be that is just because they're jerks, but recognize God may have a hand in it too. He may have put you in the company of that jerk for several reasons. One, you know, to make the jerk maybe perhaps not feel like a jerk or not be a jerk, but mostly he's teaching you something. He wants you to learn something. And in this case, it was he wants Jacob to go home. He wants him to return to, to the promised land, to his father and his mother and his family, because that's where the seed is called. It's not, he didn't, he didn't call all of these people to go to these other places. He, he brought them from these other places to the promised land. And it's true that all of Israel, from the time of the beginning, the 70 went into Egypt and came out of Egypt 3 million people. Jacob went out of the promised land by himself and now has four wives and 11 sons and who knows how many daughters 
and all these herds and wealth and all that stuff, but it was all gained outside of the promised land. So, so God uh, tends to build up his people outside of the promised land and then brings them back to the promised land. So you think about us, and, and again, God's time frame is vastly different than ours. So this country was created, let's say, in 1625 or something when the uh, first real-life settlers moved, that came here to be, you know, the pilgrims, came here to, as a Christian nation with that purpose and actually did it. There had been groups that had come before with that same uh, pretense, we're going to come as a Christian nation and teach the people that are there and all that stuff. And as soon as they set foot on this land, they immediately forgot all that and were all about making a living because making a living was hard. There was, there was you know, there's no Kmart, right? So everything they had to get, they had to get, they had to make. And they were in a new country. I mean, I'm not necessarily faulting them. I'm just saying they came over here with a charter and this started in the, what, 1490s. They came over here with a charter that they were going to bring Christianity to this land, and they never did. But finally, you got this group of pilgrims who said, we're going to come over to this land, and we're going to bring Christianity to it. And they did. So if you consider that event to be the beginning of a nation, that was 16-something, 1623 or whatever it was. So even going back that far, we're still barely 400 years into having a group of people in this country. 400 years in Scripture is often two lines. It's nothing. And 400 years to the Lord is nothing. So when we think of, uh, when we try to put in context anything that we feel the Lord is telling us to do, we should put it in the context of His time, not ours. Because He's been working this for generations. Or generations to us and as we think about uh, you know following him and learning about him and doing all these things think about it in the context of time because it takes time like the, the day is just a thousand years and a thousand years is a day it's nothing to the Lord but that's the way he looks at it so 400 years makes us still you know teenagers right this is <laughs> We're young. <laughs> you know, um, but anyway, God made it uncomfortable for those people, and they came to this country to escape what they viewed uh, as religious persecution. And they were Christians, right? But they, they weren't allowed to worship the Lord the way they wanted to. And so it has been, say, almost 400 years now, and it's becoming uncomfortable again. And how long is that going to take? You know, you, you saw the news today. Who knows? We could be in a world war tomorrow. I don't know. Or this could take another 400 years. And according to the Jewish calendar, we're still 235 years away from the return of the Lord. I personally don't see it lasting 235 years, and I'm hoping their calculations are incorrect. But we need to be prepared, is all I'm saying. And if, if you're starting to feel uncomfortable about things that are going on here and all that stuff, 
but we, you know, we're, we're really comfortable being in this country and having things the way they are. I would suggest maybe we, we just need to at least listen to see, to see what the Lord's saying. Because this is always how he works. He, he brings people to a place. He teaches them something. And then he will make their life uncomfortable until they go do or go where he's asking them to, to go or to do. And we could easily be one of those times when he's, I believe we are, when he's about to make a big move. And so many people, especially in this country, it probably wouldn't be this way in any other country, but people in this country, I mean, we're comfortable here. This is a great place. We love this country. Where would you go? There would be no place you'd want to go. And I think, and we've all made this prayer, I'm sure, you know, how lucky we are to be living in the United States. And it's true. And yet you see people from any country. I mean, you see them from Iran. There's a, a lady that's been making the rounds, wild hair, some Iranian woman. Don't forget the flower. Uh, what's that? Don't forget the flower. Oh, yeah, the flower. Apparently that's a big deal. They can't put flowers in their hair over there. I don't know what the deal is. But she's expressing the, the feelings that most people in most countries have, that they love their country. She would love Iran. She would love to go back to Iran. She loves the culture and the food and everything about Iran. But she can't. Bless you. Thank you. Because of the, you know, the current political climate. But I think everybody loves where they live. You know, and there's circumstances, I'm sure, in every country and every life that make them uncomfortable. But they want to stay. And God has been about, from the beginning, I don't want you to stay. He called Abraham, he called Rivka, he called, you know, every, everyone he's called out from where they were. And that certainly in, in most of the cases in Scripture means physically leaving where they were and going somewhere else. And we see this picture in, in, in with Jacob's life where he was in the promised land, you know, he was in Beersheba, right, this good place. And he was called to Haran, this parched place. And it's in Haran that he grew and got his wives and his children and his, his wealth so that the Lord could call him back into the promised land, into Beersheba or Bethel, which is where he's going. It's, it's, a, it's a picture that we need to be ready to leave the things of the world behind. And the things of the world are the things that make us comfortable. You know, our TVs and our, our phones and our easy jobs and, you know, everything about this country is easy and he may not be calling you physically out of this country but I am certain he's calling us to leave the comfort of the world behind and join him in his travels in the way he wants us to live and that's the whole point of the Tanakh of the Old Testament for us for them it was a it was a recording of what was actually happening it was a historical account but we get to look back at it. And if Paul's right and we are the people at the end, we have to look back at it and learn what we can learn about what they did and what they didn't do, what they did right and what they did wrong. And, and it's as though he's, there's, there's a test at the end. You know, you've all heard jokes about Peter at the pearly gate and have to pass some test. And I'm certain that's not true. 
But I am equally certain that when we die, be absent from the body is present with the Lord. We will somehow be face to face with the Lord and there will be some sort of discussion. There, you know, I, I, I'm not one of those guys who thinks everybody goes to heaven just cause. I think there's, there's a catch. You know, there's something we have to do. We're standing in front of the Lord. We've died. Our physical bodies are dead and gone. We're standing in front of the Lord. What do you think is going to happen? I don't know, but I'm certain it's not just a rubber stamp. There is something that you're going to have to express. He's, he, certainly he can see your heart and already knows. But, and I could be totally wrong on this, I don't know. But you think about what it is you would say when you're standing face to face with the Lord. I mean, once we get up, if we get up, first thing's going to happen is you'll fall to your face and praise and worship, I'm certain. And then what? Is there just like a conveyor belt to heaven? I don't know. Maybe. That would be good. We didn't have to answer any questions. But I suspect he's going to want you to say something, going to ask you something. And I don't want to be the guy that's standing up there and says, well, my pastor told me this. And I'm certain you won't be rejected because your pastor was an idiot. And I'm not saying your pastor is an idiot. I'm just saying there are some that are not, you know, awesome. So if that's the case, what do you need to know? I don't know what you need to know, but I do know where it is, and it's in the Tanakh. So as we were looking at some of the other things about him making it uncomfortable, we need to, to heed that and see what it is he's telling us. He might be telling you to move to Zimbabwe. I doubt it. He's probably telling you, hey, just abandon the things of the world. Focus on, on me and my stuff and leave them and their stuff out there. Levon and his other children, once they caught up with Jacob and all of those, they hurled all these insults and accusations out of him. You have stolen all of our father's wealth. Well, that's not true. It's never true. Esau hurled all these things at Jacob. The world hurls them at us. If you're going to follow the Lord, you can expect that you're going to receive a certain amount of unjust criticism. People are going to lie about you. People are going to say things about you. They'll imply things about you. And that's one way you can know you're following the Lord. Because if nobody's making any fun of you, they're not making your life difficult, well, I don't know. Maybe you could take a couple more steps towards the Lord. It's interesting that this all happened. Remember Jacob and uh, all the kids and the flocks and the herds were, were leaving Levon and then Levon and his sons and they figured it out and caught up with him. And where did they keep catch up with him? At Gilead. And Gilead is, is uh, the term, it's Hebrew word meaning the heap of testimony. And I just thought it was interesting that at the heap of testimony, the world, being Levon and all his people, were hurling all these accusations untrue and unfounded 
at Jacob, Israel, us, well, it's at the heap of testimony. And this testimony is, is us. I mean, are, are we testifying for the things of the Lord? Or are we act with acquiescing to the, to the lies of the enemy? You know, and we, we do both. We get caught up in stuff, but it's a testimony. The reason Jacob had all of these herds is, remember, six years previous to that, he had made it. Levon started this. He was changing his wages again. And so the deal they worked out was Jacob said, well, I will just take all of the cattle and sheep and goats from the flocks that he's managing. He's running all the flocks that are speckled and striped and funny colored. Well, there aren't that many that are born speckled and striped and funny colored. So Levon immediately saw that was a great deal. Jacob was still going to run his herds and everything that was a normal color would be his and everything that would be a weird color would be Jacob's. So Jacob will never get anything. This is great. So Jacob goes around and he puts, he strips um, stakes so they're striped and puts it in front of the animals. And they breed and they produce animals that are striped and spotted and, you know, and it's a pretty wild story. And I'm certain that there is no biology to that. You can't stick a picture of a monkey in front of a cow and get a monkey, right? It's, she'll probably just be annoyed at the picture of the monkey. But there's a, there, there has to be something here. And I was thinking that one of the things, well, it's not that I thought of this, but one of the things, or one of the ideas is that what the parents see and do and think affects the unborn sheep, goat, child. And it affects their soul. And I'm thinking about that picture in, in relation to Jacob because it's such a crazy story. You know, you, you, you cannot put a striped stick in front of a cow and expect you to get a striped cow out of it. And yet that's what was happening. And obviously this was the Lord, but there's a bigger picture. I would suspect, because the whole picture is always that of, of bless you, of, of leaving the things of the world. Right? That's always what he's asking us to do, is to leave perhaps where you are, but the picture is to leave the things of the world. And we all have these things in our house, and we have, you know, Netflix and, and Hulu, and, you know, we have all kinds of stuff, right? So we don't have to watch commercials. We can get more right into the, the meat of the matter. Well, the things that are shown on that are not typically super edifying for people who are following the Lord. And my, my mind wanders to the, if we see stuff like that as parent or as before parents, as say newlyweds, we see stuff, it certainly goes in, you know, through our eyes into our head. Does it, could it, might it have an effect on the child that's born? And if that's, true or even possible, 
If you did that the other way around, where the only things you allowed into your life were edifying things and godly things and learning the word and you know being a friend of God and all that stuff, would that also work its way into the soul of the child? And I, I would suspect it does. Because you look at the soul of the children today, and they're nothing like they were 50 or 60 years ago. And everybody, oh, how did this happen? Well, they pulled prayer out of schools and made fun of Christians and churches and had to take the Ten Commandments down and it's illegal to be a Christian in places. I mean, this what we do right here is illegal in some communities. You can't have a meeting of... You could, you could have a meeting here to make up Antifa flags and, and stuff, but you certainly couldn't talk about the Lord and good stuff. You know, and... It's, it, it's, it's all happened so fast. And I just wonder if, if maybe some of the things that parents were letting into their eyes and their heads affected the souls of their children. And now it's just spinning out of control. Anyway, um, we talked a little bit about wells. So many cool things in Scripture happen at wells. And remember Bayar, the word for well. And a well, we don't, you know, wells to us are something totally different than they were for most of history. My well is a little box that, you know, sits in the lawn and nobody really knows what it does, but there's always water in the tank, right? But a well, for all of the history of history, was a hole in the ground, and there was water at the bottom of it, you hoped, and you would toss a bucket in on a rope and pull it up. You wouldn't really see the water. It's black down in the hole unless the sun's directly overhead, which almost never happens. So there's a certain amount of faith to it, but you throw the bucket in and you pull it up, and it comes up out of the darkness, and you begin to see the bucket, and you begin to see the water, and you begin to see the light, and then it comes up, and you can see it all, and you pour it in the trough and use it. And it's no coincidence that these important things happen at wells, because that's exactly how it happens. Right? We don't know. I mean... Who here has met God personally? I suspect none of us yet. How do you know? I mean, how do you know these things are true? The same way that you throw the bucket into the well and you pull it up, little by little, line upon line, precept upon precept, the Bible says, it draws closer and closer to the top and you start, you begin to see it. It goes out of the darkness into the light. And that's the way we live our lives or hopefully we live our lives, always casting the bucket into the well and never really knowing until it splashes and then you bring it up. Okay, Yaakov was the name, Yaakov, Jacob is his name. Yaakov is the word for heal. It's also a word for end, the end. So as we're talking about Jacob and we talked, last week about, you know, he's not, heel catcher is, is bad, it's hand on heel, he's protecting himself, I, I think, from the enemy and all that. He's, he's the restrainer, he's the guy that restrained the evil from getting the blessing and all that stuff. But akav also means end. So when we talk about Jacob and all of these things and all of these prophecies or these prophetic ideas and pictures and stuff, every time you say that or read that or hear that, Jacob, Yaakov, is, 
is that the end. These things pertain to the end. So we talked about, uh, you know, the place and the rock. And it's interesting that the place and the rock were both rejected by the builders. And who are the builders? You know, the religious leaders, the politicians, the statesmen, the teachers, the people who are telling us everything, who teach us what life's all about. They've rejected the rock, the guy, the father, the son. And yet we, we listen to them. Okay, Gilead, Gentile, Gentile bride, Gentile bride. All through scripture, you get this impression, and certainly more than an impression, uh, Rivka was going with the father, sent the spirit, to find a bride for the son, brought her back on the Torah with the spirit, and they were wet, right? Well, the bride to the son of the father was a Gentile. Everywhere in scripture, the bride to the son of the father is always a Gentile. Well, we're Gentiles. And that's what the New Testament will tell us, is that we are supposed to be the bride of Christ, it says, the bride of the Messiah. The bride of the Son of the Father is always a Gentile. Always. And it's interesting, Gilead, where this heap of testimony is, where all of this stuff was occurring, is the home of Elijah. And Elijah is a Gentile. Elijah is the guy at the Passover that we leave the door open for and set the extra plate because we expect him to come to the Passover to reveal to us the Messiah. That's his job. But he's a Gentile. How is he going to re reveal the God of the Jews, if you put it that way? He's a Gentile. But we're Gentiles. We're Israel. We're Jacob. Jacob had to go out of the country to get all this stuff. Abraham out of the country to get all this stuff. It's always that way. So remember, Jacob had to leave a place of fullness, Beersheba, go to a place of parched in order to be filled and come back to the promised land. So the last part of that last week was, it was in Hosea chapters two, I think, chapter one and two. It says, the Lord will gather his sheep and break out. Okay, well, are you the sheep of the Lord? Anybody here want to take that as their tag, sheep of the Lord? I assume we all would. And if the Lord comes and gets his sheep and breaks them out, well, that means they weren't where he wanted them. At the end, I've said this for years, and I don't know how it will happen or, or what will cause it, but the Bible seems to be clear that we will be in the promised land somehow. And we can, I suppose, try to write that off as allegory. And, you know, I still get to live here, but well, I don't think so. I think somehow we will physically be there. And in this section last week... Uh, 
That's what he says. The Lord will come and get his sheep and break them out, is the actual Hebrew word. Break them out and take them home. So again, the purpose, I mean, my purpose for doing this stuff is only that we be open and aware, maybe, ready. Because stuff is going to happen that nominal Christians are going to say, oh, no, 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 that's not the way I would have heard it. And they won't go. What if this guy, the Messiah, came and said, oh, you're all my sheep, I'm taking you home. How many people are going to say, oh, no, you're not. I'm staying here. God told me to grow where I'm planted or whatever, you know, whatever their deal is. How many people are going to miss it? Because they didn't get the pictures. Anyway, this next Torah, this today's Torah portion, which we haven't even got to yet, uh, is where Jacob actually encounters Esau on his way home. And we've read this, you know, probably dozens of times and seen the flannel graphs and all that. He's seriously concerned, right? He's leaving the heap of testimony and his servants come and say, Esau is coming with 400 men. Why would he need 400 men? You know, there's only one reason you take 400 men with you and it's not good. So Jacob is worried, seriously worried. And you've read this account. He's worried about Esau killing him. And of course, from where we sit, it's easy to go, well, what are you worried about? The Lord promised that you and your seed would inherit this. And Esau himself said he couldn't kill you until after Isaac had died. Isaac's not dead yet. It's, it's been more than 20 years since Isaac said he was going to die. He's not dead yet. So Esau really can't kill him. But anyway, he makes a plan, right? He sends three waves of gifts to Esau for the purpose of um, um, softening him up, right? And he divides his family into two bands, it says, two groups, two bands. And it's interesting because two, you've always got two. There's two in Ezekiel 37, two sticks. There's two olive trees Paul talks about. It's always two. And the Lord always takes two and makes them one because he can't have mixing. He can't have different stuff. So he takes whatever the two are and makes them one. And it's interesting that he, he, he did that. So he makes this uh, uh, plan. And he prays. Good advice. So I think that's good advice for us. We're faced with stuff all the time, or we will be faced with stuff in the future. And we tend to want to figure out an answer because we've spent our entire lives figuring out the answer of how to make it work. And that's good. We should. We should use our experience and our wisdom and our knowledge and our God-given gifts to try to figure this out. But don't forget, this, it's, it's all about the Lord. We have to stop and pray. And he did. And Jacob sends these animals to seek to bless Esau. And he did. Um, <clears throat> Jacob is treated as a brother by Esau, which is weird. We read that and think, well, that's, you know, this whole thing, this doesn't sit right. This, you know, Esau is trying to kill him. But Isaac's not dead yet. He's, he's, he really isn't. He's, he can't kill him because Isaac hasn't died yet. And Jacob understands who his brother is. 
and his brother was a great hunter. The trapping was in his mouth. Remember from last week? He's a liar. He's, he's a deceiver. He's like Matt King with ropes, except he lies. That's how he traps stuff. Okay, so Jacob gives him gifts in order to lift his face in front of Esau. Um, and remember that everything the patriarchs go through in the, in the Tanakh, we can expect to happen to us. So uh, if, I mean, you can extrapolate that yourself, this whole story of Esau and Jacob. If the things that are happening to Jacob are the things that are going to happen to us, read that account again and see what those things are. And how is that going to play out in your life? He is way outnumbered. He can't possibly fight him. So he puts it in God's hands. Um, and this is the part he sends. You know, he sent all these gifts, divide up his families into two bands. And then he crossed back over the four Jabbok. And this is the time he wrestled with God all night. And you remember what happened. Um, a ford, by the way, is a crossing place, a new, a place of transit. And Jabbok is to spread out like a fruitful vine. So he's crossing over to grow, to spread. And of course, his whole family is here. So he's wrestling with the Lord, apparently. And the Lord uh, puts his hip out of joint, Right? And you think, well, that's weird. And he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. So Jacob goes into this little wrestling match and Israel comes out. Jacob had a particular way he walked and thought and did and just like we all do. And when he came out, he was different. He didn't walk the same anymore. And that's, I suspect, why of all the things that could have happened, the one thing that the Lord did was he made it so his walk was different. He you could see it was Jacob from 10 miles away because he walked differently now. Well, that's us, right? We are supposed to, after wrestling with or meeting with God, we should walk differently. We should no longer embrace the things of the world and walk the way the world does. We should walk differently. So then we see Esau accepting these blessings from Jacob, of course, because he's willing to take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cattle and all sorts of riches and wealth. And Esau says, well, come back with me to Seir. And Jacob wisely says, no, thank you, I can't. We'll come later, but I have little ones and the cattle and the newbies. and We'll go slowly. So Jacob or Esau says, well, let me leave you some people to help you, you know, to guard you. And he says, no, that's not necessary. So Jacob understood you can't mix. He's not going to mix. With, he already knew who Esau was. He knew he was a hunter and a trapper and a deceiver. He was being polite and treating him as a brother, but he wasn't sucked into what he was saying. And again, there's a great picture in that. He goes to Sukkoth, Shalom, and Shechem. So Seir means, remember, hairy goat, basically. It's a rocky, horrible, terrible place. The word is goat, hairy. That's where Esau lives, in this rocky, horrible goat place. 
So instead, Jacob, as soon as he gets rid of Esau and his 400 men, turns the other way and goes to a place called Sukkoth, which is the booths, which is tabernacles. The place reminds us that this isn't our home. Our home is somewhere else. It's in Shalom, which is like Shalom. It's a friendly, complete place. And it's in sort of, I guess you could say, the country or the province of Shechem, which is the place of the shoulder, which is what holds the burdens. And Shechem can be good or bad you know, depending on your burden. And that's where Jacob, that's where Israel went. That's where we went. Uh, then there's the rape of Dinah, his sister, his uh, daughter. And uh, Dinah's brothers were Levi and Simeon. And they... Uh, the Hittite who raped her, wanted to marry her, was smitten by her, which again is, uh, it's, a, it's a picture of, of us in that the world is drawn to us if we let it happen. You know, they, they see things in us they see nowhere else if we're walking correctly. And he was, he was smitten with her and he wanted to marry her, so the plan develops that, uh, you know the plan. Okay, we'll intermarry with you, we'll mingle with you, we'll exchange our women for your women and men for your men, And but you need to be circumcised. So they agreed, of course. This will be great. We'll get all the wealth of Jacob, they say. And they get circumcised. And on the third day after the circumcision, Levi and Simeon go in and kill all the men take all the spoils, take the women and little ones hostage. Seems a little extreme. Um, and Jacob rebukes them for this, not for what they've done, but because they've made him stink. They've made him look bad in the eyes of the people. And it was Jacob that said this, not Israel. So Jacob is the man, Israel is the one following the Lord. Jacob said, he could just see what a man could see. He's thinking, great, now everybody around me is going to hate me and want to kill me because of what you guys did. He didn't pass judgment on what they did. He didn't say whether it's good or bad. or He just said, you're making me stink. So he had apparently hoped to live quietly and peacefully among the heathens. And there's so many people I know that have said, oh, I'm, I've been a Christian for 20 years, but nobody knows like that's a good thing. That's not a good thing. Everybody should know that your walk is different and that you're something, that you belong to the Lord. And they should always know. But sometimes it's difficult. And nowadays it's often illegal for us to tell people that. But it's it doesn't matter. People should always know. And I know when I was... You know, in my last life, running a glass shop with all these rough and tumble construction guys that I'd stop every single day and pick somebody up out of work furlough from jail. I mean, that's, they're hard living guys. And when their lives suddenly took a turn, they would slide into my office and shut the door and want to talk about Because they knew. The world is like that. They know. Okay, then the Lord in Genesis 35, chapter 1 says, uh, God said unto Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar 
there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, this is Jacob, get rid of your foreign gods you have, that have come with you and purify yourself and change your clothes. Does that seem odd? Yes. <laughs> why would they have foreign, foreign gods? gods? That's right. And why would their clothes be filthy? Which is always a picture of spiritually filthy. Now, part of this is because they have, they have now added to the group uh, the women and children from the Hittites. And they were not, okay, I get that. But you see this all the time, probably half a dozen times or more, you will see this idea of get rid of your foreign gods and change your clothing. Clean yourselves up. Wash the world off you. And it's always the people of God. Well, obviously the others have that. They're just not being told to clean up. But it's these people of God that need to be cleaned up. And we sit here and, or I sit here and think, oh well, yeah, you know, you, you guys ought to get your act together out there. You guys need to clean. I know all about you. But it's the same with all of us. We all have stuff that we need to get rid of. And if we are going to go to Bethel, the house of God, we need to do that. Verse 3, it says, And come, let us go up to Bethel, where I'll build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under an oak tree at Shechem. And then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns around them, and no one pursued them. Okay, so where is he building this altar? Bethel. Where is Bethel? The place. He's building an altar where the, the rock at the place is going to be the house of God. It's the place where Isaac was almost sacrificed. It's, it's the place. He's building an altar at the place and all of the people are getting rid of their worldly stuff. I mean, this is a picture of certainly what will happen literally twice, and then again at the end for us. I mean, we, we have to get rid of all our worldly stuff. How do you know it's worldly stuff? You read the Tanakh. You read the Torah. It's impossible for us, I suspect, to determine on our own, with our own eyes and our own sensibilities, what is worldly and what is not. Only the Lord knows. And he's willing to tell us, but we have to read, we have to look. And Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. And there he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God re revealed himself to him and he, when he was fleeing from his brother. And then as so often in scripture, you get this random verse. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak tree outside of Bethel. And so it was named Alon Bakuth. Okay, awesome. That's great. Deborah was Rebekah's nurse, right? We don't read about Rebekah's death. Now we know she's buried at Machpelah. Does that mean that Deborah was with Jacob this whole time? Or did he 
<laughs> we don't know. It's just, it's one of those interesting things. Um, then we learn about Rachel's death. He's, Jacob and the people are on the road to Bethlehem. Rachel is about to give birth. She dies in childbirth. And of course, she's buried on the road on the way to Bethlehem. To this day, there's still a uh, Rachel's tomb. But you, you know, if you're a Christian or a Jew, you can't get to it anymore. But do you remember when Levon came, tracked Jacob and the crew down, said, "You've taken my children, you've taken my grandchildren, you didn't let me say goodbye to them, and you've stolen my my gods." And Jacob said, "What are you talking about, stealing your god? What do we need your stupid gods for?" Well, he didn't know Rachel had stolen the gods, the silver images, and he said. May the person who stole those gods die. Well, that was Rachel. And she did. She died in childbirth. And it seems... It, it, we, we've talked about this before. Don't make an oath. Do not, because you just don't know. Don't swear anything. Just... But your yes be yes, your no be no, there's no reason to go past that. And we've seen this half a dozen times where some well-meaning guy said something, may this happen to, who, you know, come to find out it was his daughter or his wife or whatever. Because words are not revocable. And that was the whole idea of Hebrew. Words are true. And it was not until the enemy when the first time words were used in an untrue manner, so he's called the father of lies. But words are true. And he says these things. You get this all the time with the blessings and all this. Like, like his father. He, he gave him the blessing. And apparently it was in his father's heart to give it to Esau. But he couldn't take it back. It had been given. Words are true. And they have, and they have meanings. And think that through when you're talking about being a Christian and following the Lord. And, you know, the things that you learn. The things, you know, from your flannel graph or from your father's cousin's mother's son's uncle or you know wherever we get the information we get about the things in the bible words are true read it in the bible learn what the bible says okay genesis 35 19 and rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrathah, which is bethlehem and jacob set up a pillar upon her grave and the pillar is of rachel's grave today and now it's Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the Tower of Adar. Anybody? The Migdal Adar in Bethlehem? This is the place Jesus would be born. That's where Jacob is putting his tents. That's where his family is going to be. Then we get to the part where Reuben sleeps with Bilhah and you think, oh my gosh, what a loser. Okay, that may be true, but... In most cultures, for most of the history of history, the firstborn son, when he took over everything of the fathers, that included the wives. Reuben was the firstborn. He was, I mean, a case could be made that he was seeing, you know, his, his firstbornness, and that's what the world would have him do. But that's not what the Lord would have him do, right? We are supposed to walk differently than the world. 
Reuben, I suspect, was swept up in things and the riches and the excitement of the world. And he did what the world would have him do. Because, I mean, that would have been his right as the firstborn to take the wives of the father. Which, when you think that through to the end, it gets pretty creepy. But anyway, that's the world. So don't be thinking that, you know, he was just a jerk, which, again, he, he may well have been. But he wasn't dismissed from the family. He, didn't, he, 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 he continued to be the firstborn all the way through Scripture. He just lost the rights to, to the birthright and, and the duties of the firstborn. He, he was not uh, thrown out of the family, as it were, so it was probably not... It was probably just that he was following the things of the world and we should never follow the things of the world because that's what happens. We find ourselves doing stuff that's just like, what? Why, why would I ever do that? Because you get wrapped up in the things of the world. Okay. Um, let's see what we've got here. Oh, then it goes through the whole generations of Esau thing. Let me, let me read you three quick verses. Genesis, well, those. Genesis 36, one, it's called uh, Esau who is Edom. There we go. This is all in one chapter. This is in the genealogy of Esau. Genesis 36, one. Now, these are the generations of Esau who is Edom. Verse 8. Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. In verse 19, these are the sons of Esau who is Edom and their dukes. 43 duke. Magdalene, Duke Iram, Duke, these were the dukes of Edom. According to the habitations of the land of their possession, he is Esau, the father of the Edomites. Okay, four times we're told Esau is Edom. That's got to be important. And it is important, of course, because Edom are the traditional and continual enemies of all of God's people. I mean, to this day, and they still live in the same place, and they still do the same thing. But Esau and Jacob were born of the same parents, raised in the same house. How is it possible that one went one way and one went the other? Just like Ishmael and Isaac, and just like Cain and Abel. It's, it goes back to Michal. You, you have to bend your will to the Lord. It's... You can go either way. Any of us can go either way. We have to make an effort to bend our will to the things of the Lord. And some are willing to do it. And some would rather play with the world. So the Haftorah sections are the book of Obadiah and Hosea that we, we mentioned up there. And I would suggest that you read those uh, sometime in the next few days. They're real quick reads. They're about the destruction of Edom. So the Lord makes a huge deal about who is Edom, and Scripture is replete with the accounts of the destruction of Edom, and Amalek, and Esau, and Ishmael, and Nimrod, and Cain, and, you know, and all of these people. So the question is, why would anyone choose to follow the things of the world? Because that it's the 
The only end is destruction. And yet, half the people will. Well, more than half the people will. The road is very narrow of those who choose to follow the Lord. And the world is very enticing, and people will tend to go there. And for us who live in a country as nice and easy and as this country is, I think it's even harder for us to get on that narrow road because there's no real need for us to find the Lord. Our lives are fine. They're fine with or without the Lord. This country is a great place to live. It's easy, there's plenty of food, plenty of work. For the most part, nobody's coming after us. It's easy. Why do we need the Lord? But if you want to get past this place into the next place, is why you need the Lord. And I would suspect those of us who say how lucky it is, how lucky we are, and how great it is that we were born in a country like this, that's true, except if we were born in another country where there's all kinds of persecution and all kinds of horrible things and not enough food and, you know, we would, have, we would have had a real need for God. I'm sure we all have missionaries that we support that are in these countries that it's unbelievable what happens. But it's just as unbelievable how many people come to know the Lord because of those things. So I guess for us, my instruction or hope or encouragement would only be to not let the things of the world separate us from the Lord. And it's harder than we think because we are so wrapped up in the things of the world. Anyway, that's that for today. Okay, that might have been a rule.